So I've just returned from a week long, my first solo backpacking trip to Humpy and Chishkindha. And uh, you know, this is a Chishkindha of Ramayana. And this, is, this was the kingdom of Bali. Uh, this is where Ram uh, met Hanuman. And uh, you know, you could argue that all these places, uh, <coughs> Chishkindha and Panchvati, have been retrofitted into the Ramayana at a much later time and that those guys could not have known the history of or the geography of this country. But, uh, you know, Sanjeev in his book, Land of Seven Rivers, argues that uh, Valmiki's evocative description of Hampi, um, you know, how how he describes it and how the place is, there is no way Valmiki could not have known that place firsthand or, you know, either through traders or having seen it himself. Um, further, there is a Slothware sanctuary just 30 kilometers from Hampi, and you might recall Jamwan Hanuman Slothware friend. So there are too many sort of coincidences, if you like, you know, for this story to be retrofitted or made up and all of this, right? And you know, Sanjeev also argues that Hanuman could have been a Neolithic tribe, part of a Neolithic tribe, which could have used uh, the monkey or the langur as a totem. And they need not be monkey-looking people. They could be forest dwellers, van has. So, and you know, Eloisar or Land of Seven Rivers, if I remember correctly, is dedicated to your kids and to Britain, so that you may know where you came from. Yeah. And to be honest, that's the journey that this man sent me on to find out and connect with the roots where I came from. And uh, this was not the first trip. Last year, I was in Cambodia, sitting on the footsteps of Angkor Thang, part of the Angkor Wat temples and reading page 74 and reading about how Indian entrepreneurs, you know, from India, from uh, Bengal, traveled all over and spread the influence of uh, Indian, many Indianized cultures and spread Hindu Buddhist temples in Southeast Asia. So that's the effect of Sanji's storytelling on me. Um, uh, Sanji, uh, Chief strategist, was. managing was the chief strategist <laughs> and the managing director of Bank, and he's one of the top uh, economists in India. He's been involved in urban planning, yes. And uh, you know, one observation in one of his books is about India's inevitable urbanization. <coughs> and in my uh, last week, about seven eight hundred kilometers, when I did in Rikiti. Karnataka buses on small towns all over the place from starting with Hyderabad actually in Telangana from to Belgaum. Uh, I did not find any romantic ideal villages. I found thriving urban centers, dusty, honky, bustling with people. I found markets which were selling everything from farm equipments to modern Kirana stores and at the same time uh, rural uh, sabzi markets all alongside. So, from you know, really a very idealistic Gandhian uh, go back to villages uh, kind of uh, narrative, Sanjeev has offered at least for me a very powerful narrative of India's uh, economic rise after a thousand years of decline, which incidentally is his first book, and I relished it, unputdownable. Um, 
So his powerful storytelling and his uncanny ability to connect events <coughs> which are separated by several millennia is really what has given me a you know a new sense of a renewed sense of purpose. And this event is you know to be honest an expression of that sort of sense of purpose. It was a you know I really have to say this and not make it a formal expression. <laughs> Thank you, Rahul. Um, now I'll have to live up to it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> the topic of today is uh, to what extent uh, is Indian history really true? And the genesis of this really comes from a statement I often hear, um, particularly from educated people, that Indians are somehow an ahistorical people, i.e., that we do not. For, we are sort of unique in the world and not caring about our past. That <clears throat> now this is a really astonishing accusation to make uh, about what is arguably the world's oldest continuous civilization. Uh, here are a people who in um, normal conversation will uh, throw up uh, idioms and ideas and names and uh, that uh, appear in epics that are from the Iron Age. Um, Every day, uh, tens of millions of Hindus will chant the Gayatri Mantra, uh, which was composed uh, in a very ancient form of Ved uh, Vedic Sanskrit um, in the Bronze Age, uh, you know, depending on who you ask, uh, between 3,500 and 5,000 years back. So clearly we are, if anything, a people obsessed with the past, obsessed with the continuity of our civilization. And it's something, it's, uh, it's a continuity that I will, as we will discuss, uh, we have bought with blood. So, surely it is strange that we should be accused then of not having any interest in our history. If we were not interested, I wouldn't have been able to fill out this uh, room uh, uh, at all. So, what is the real problem? And I would argue the real problem is that intuitively we know that the history that we are taught, the history that is there in our textbooks is actually false. And because we know intuitively that it is false, we tend not to have too much respect for it. So really, the issue really is what extent is it false or by converse true? And the second question of course is then how do we then begin to tell the story in the so-called correct way? Now there are many reasons why our history has been mangled as it is presented to us today. And I will get into some of them, not all of them, because it will take way too long. But one of the very, very important reasons why our history is fundamentally flawed in the way it is presented to us is that it is not our history at all. It is really the history of, our, of foreign invaders. It is the history of the invaders writing the history of their invasions. And therefore, when you read Indian history, it is a long litany of battles that the Indians lost. So think back to your history books that you have read or had to study at university or college uh, or school and it's about the three battles of Panipat. It's about the battle of Plassey and the battle of Baksar. But you never read anything about the battles that the Indians won. In fact, we won quite a lot of battles if you look, go back and dig up our history for the very simple reason we know that for the very simple reason that we are still here. And our, we won this uh, continuity of our civilization, as I pointed out, 
through spilling a lot of blood and we won quite a lot of times and that is why we continue to exist because it was not as if those who invaded us did not try to forcibly change uh, 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 and, and dominate us. So let me name a few battles through history that many of you may have never heard of but are actually major events in Indian history. Now you have all heard of Mahmud Ghazni and how he invaded India 17 years for 17 times over 25 years. Now, if you read an Indian history book, you will get the impression that Mahmud Ghazni came, he invaded 17 times, a few years passed, and then, Mahmud, uh, and then Muhammad Ghori came in, he defeated Prithviraj Chauhan, and then you know the, the gates of India opened and we were conquered in one shot. In fact, nothing of that sort happened. There is a gap of one and a half centuries between Mahmud Ghazni and Muhammad Ghori. Why is there a 150 year gap between the two? And the reason for that <coughs> is that in 1033 AD, a very large Turkish army charged down from Afghanistan across the plains, across into the Gangetic plains and was met by a much smaller army led by a bunch of local chieftains from, <coughs> from that area. Uh, near what is now uh, 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 Faizabad, Ayodhya area and they fought a big battle and the, and the Indian side was led by a chieftain called Suheldev or Sukhdev Pasi and in that battle the Turks were completely destroyed. They were destroyed and decimated to such an extent that they did not dare come back in for another 150 years. This army was led by Mahmud Ghazni's uh, nephew who was killed in that battle. There's still a Mazar to him uh, in, in, in Bahraich. This is the Battle of Bahraich in 1033 AD. Now, no Indian textbook will tell you about this. The only people who remember about this are the, the, the caste from which uh, Suheldev Pasi uh, came from, the Pasis themselves. But other than that, pretty much nobody else remembers this. But this is not the only example. If you're not happening, if you don't happen to be Assamese, you're probably entirely ignorant about the fact that the Mughal Empire at its height was defeated by the Assamese in a place very close to Gohati called Sarai Ghat by a Ahom general called Lasith Borphukun. He's one of the great generals of Indian history. He managed somehow to coax the Mughals, who were basically cavalry and artillery guys, to fight a battle on the Brahmaputra where obviously the, the Assamese had a huge advantage because they were locals and he essentially sank the entire Mughal uh, fleet on the Brahmaputra. It was a completely devastating uh, uh, dis uh, uh, defeat. Uh, the first really big defeat that the Mughals had faced in uh, India since Humayun came back uh, to rule Delhi and it was absolutely devastating. After that essentially the Mughal Empire began to fall apart and you have of course the Marathas, the Bundelas and others who <coughs> took over uh, the Mughal Empire very very quickly thereafter. Again as I said you probably unless you are Assamese have never heard of this battle of Sarai Ghat or of Lasit Borpukun. In fact many of you may not even have heard of Baji Rao uh, till this movie Baji Rao Mastani came through and yet he is one of the great generals of Indian history. The British did not conquer India from the Mughals as our history books will give you, so suggest to you. They actually conquered it from the Marathas who for 75 years ruled over at least two thirds of India. 
In fact, Baji Rao's son, Raghunath Rao, I think his name was, ruled over an empire that was larger than that of Akbar. And yet, he's simply not there in any of our history books. And then, of course, if you don't happen to be from Kerala, you've probably never heard of Martanda Varma. Now, Martanda Varma is an extremely interesting character. He was the ruler of what was then a very, very small kingdom called Travancore or Vennad, which is a very... He extended it, but when he came to power, it was essentially a principality uh, smaller than uh, what is now Delhi state. And he decided to take on what was then the biggest empire in the world, which was, oddly enough, forgotten now, the Dutch Empire. The Dutch were the most powerful maritime power in the early 18th century. They had already taken over uh, what is now Indonesia. They had taken over Sri Lanka. And now they were attempting to take over India when they were confronted by this very tiny kingdom, uh, 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 the ruler called Martanda Varma, who defeated them in a battle in a place called Kolachal, which is just north, uh, north uh, uh, west of uh, Kanyakumari. And if he hadn't defeated him, it's very likely that I would have been giving you this talk in Dutch. So. These are just a few of the very important characters in Indian history who are simply edited out of our history. Now, why is it the case? It is the case because, very simply, the foreign rulers who ruled over India for the last 800 years or so wrote history from their perspective, which is only uh, naturally to be expected. They wrote history, but the they wrote, consequently, wrote about, one, they edited out the bits where <clears throat> they were being defeated. So, consequently, those bits were underplayed. But they also layered and layered upon it their own ideas and thoughts and so on. And the depth to which this has now percolated even into our own consciousness is quite amazing. Now, it is not unusual for a conqueror uh, particularly a conquering culture, not just a conquering individual, but a conquering culture, to promote everything that came before them as the age of darkness or the age of Jehalia. It is very, very common. Uh, 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 and so, this is a phenomenon that we should be too surprised about. And this happened by uh, conquerors in many, many parts of the world. So, for example, when the British or the Europeans colonized uh, Africa, one of the common stated uh, 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 storylines that they uh, promoted was that before they turned up, there was essentially no culture, civilization or anything in anywhere in Africa. Now, there was some inconvenient evidence that kept popping up. One of this evidence uh, against their storyline was a, the ruins of an ancient city called Great Zimbabwe, after which the country uh, was later named. Now, this is a fairly extensive area with a stone city that, you know, the remains of which were found, um, you know, from the, they were known about from at least the 16th century, but certainly by the 18th century, people were well aware of this. And because it was very inconvenient to uh, the story that everything pre-colonial pre was the age of darkness, the story was built up that... <clears throat> This city was built by somebody from outside, perhaps from the eastern 
Mediterranean, essentially white-skinned people who came and built these cities and provided civilization to the locals. And this storyline was the official storyline all the way to when the apartheid regime in uh, Rhodesia, which later became Zimbabwe, uh, became free. Now, people will immediately notice the parallels between this storyline and the Aryan invasion theory. Essentially, <coughs> the British and the Europeans, when they came to India and they took over this place, they couldn't make the case that there was no civilization here, which is what they did in Africa. So they made up this other story that while we may be new, there were another bunch of white-skinned chaps who came and gave you civilization 1,500 years, uh, in 1,500 BC. And guess what? So you shouldn't really mind the fact that we have taken over your country because really speaking, we are latter-day Aryans and we are here to give you a software update. So this, the odd thing about this is that it was done fairly blatantly. There is no evidence of any invasion in any, any text. The earliest Rigvedic texts are very, have no knowledge of Central Asia. They are basically concerned with Southern Haryana. There is no archaeological evidence of this. There is no genetic evidence of any invasion. And yet, what is quite amazing is that we have continued to perpetuate this uh, storyline uh, in our own history. Now, before I go any further, one thing I do want to clarify is that I am not making the case here that everything good in Indian civilization is somehow indigenous. It's not. We have been enormously enriched by all kinds of things brought, in, brought from outside by traders and migrants who came peacefully and even by, even by um, invaders who came in. I mean, the Portuguese may have done all kinds of bad things with, under the Inquisition, but frankly, Indian food would be entirely unrecognizable without tomato, chilies and other things that the Portuguese brought. Um, and the British may have done all kinds of bad things like the Bengal famine of 1943 or <clears throat> and various other famines and invasion uh, and, and, and massacres. But the frankly is I'm giving a talk to you in English. Uh, many of you will go back home and watch cricket and so on. So the point is, it is also true that while these invasions happened, we have our civilization is a result of many of the influences that came from outside. So I am not making a case here, let me clear, to make a case that somehow, you know, there is some pure indigenous culture that we must try and revive. That is not at all my intention. It is also not my intention that Indian history needs to be told from a purely uh, uh, the perspective of uh, a Hindu India or even the Dharmic India. Uh, because the fact is that we have many interactions, a large part of our civilization has been enriched by people who belong to uh, faiths and ideas and, uh, and uh, cultures that have come from outside. But what I am making a case is that when we do talk about this multitudinous uh, uh, and, and, and very plural culture, we talk about it still from the perspective of the Indians not the perspective of the, of the invader. And uh, let me explain how this would be. Let's take Islam, for example. Not many people realize <coughs> that the second oldest mosque in the world is in India. It's the Cheruman Mosque in Kerala. It's about an hour and a half drive north of uh, Kochi. This mosque was built 
by Arab traders who had been trading with India from you know five six hundred years earlier. So they were already very conversant with coming to India. And the very earliest Muslims, many of whom would have personally known the Prophet, came and built this mosque. This mosque was built while Muhammad was still in Medina. He had not yet conquered Mecca. Just think about it. This is how old that mosque is. Within that same area, with a short walk, are some very, very old Jewish synagogues. And in fact, Cochin even today has a shrinking but still uh, existing Jewish community which is the oldest continuous Jewish community in the world. Again in the generally the same area, there are Syrian Christians who depending on whether you believe St. Thomas came to India or not, it is quite certain whether you, uh, that this community is very very old which came here in at least by the 2nd century BC. So even if St. Thomas, that story is not true, they were certainly there from a very, very early stage. Many of their liturgy is written in, <coughs> in Syriac, which is very close to the language in which Jesus Christ himself would have uh, 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 given, uh, preached himself. So these are some of the oldest texts <coughs> of Christianity. And now with the destruction of the Christian community in uh, Iraq and Syria, uh, I think one can make the fair case that they are now also the oldest continuous Christian community in the world. Now, this is just one state of Kerala. And even in fact, within that, this is just a few districts where this is true. So, the point I'm making is, they are also a part of our civilization, but yet our history books don't talk about them. They are much more interested in Alauddin Khilji and Babar <coughs> and Ghazni. Because, as I pointed out to you, this is not about our history, it is about the history imposed enough from above. Now having cursed this rather colonial imposition of history on us, the odd thing is that having become now free for some 70 odd years, we never went about cleansing it of these biases. Now every other country faced these same problems. Now, if you go and uh, uh, read history books in any other part of the world, they tell their story from their perspective. And the reason for that is a very simple one. As long as the lions do not have their storytellers, history will always glorify the hunter. This is an African saying. And so, every culture tells the story from their perspective. Fair enough. Um, the only people who have systematically not gone about doing this is essentially Indians. This is not due to a lack of our own interest in history, but as I will point out to you, it is because those who came to power <coughs> in 1947 had a somewhat different agenda on what they were trying to do. And to make my case, I am just going to take up one example of a king called Ashoka who all of you have read about. I am taking a very simple case. Relatively, I could say, unlike Tipu Sultan or many of the others which are controversial, I am going to take a case where pretty much every book, every historian, every TV series is very clear that he was a good guy. And I am going to show you that in fact, almost everything that we know about him is actually a lie. Now, <clears throat> let's start with what do we know about Ashoka? We know 
for sure that he was not the designated heir of that uh, of, of the um, Mauryan Empire. His father Bindusara wanted somebody else to be, uh, 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 become the, uh, his heir. Uh, <clears throat> it happened to be that when Bindusara was, uh, uh, was ill and he died, uh, the crown prince was away in uh, Gandhar fighting uh, 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 some invaders, possibly Greeks who were coming in and he was not in the capital. So Ashoka basically happened to be in the capital and he took control of the Pataliputra and using Greek mercenaries, he murdered uh, the crown prince when he came through to the gates of Pataliputra and possibly burnt him alive. Subsequent to this, Ashoka then actually massacred pretty much all the other male members of his family. Uh, the Buddhist texts say 99 brothers were killed. He also then carried out major massacres of pretty much all the other uh, ministers, generals, etc., who may, may have opposed him. Now, having carried out all these great massacres, he left one person alive, which was his uh, full brother Tissa and every other male member of the family was essentially killed. Now this bit is agreed upon by everybody. This bit is not a co the controversial bit. Now it happened to be that uh, the, the Mauryan kings, the Maurya, the Maurya family was quite interesting in its religious beliefs. Though, so the court, uh, many of the court rituals that were done were possibly very likely continued to be of Vedic uh, court rituals. But in their personal life, many of them had very eclectic tastes. So Chandragupta, who was the grandfather of Ashoka, possibly became a Jain monk in, the, in his later years. Bindusara uh, was a proponent of a sect called the Ajivikas. Uh, the Ajivikas are no longer around. Uh, it's very likely they merged at some point uh, uh, with the uh, Natha stream of Shaivism. But uh, it was uh, one of the big uh, uh, rivals of uh, Jainism and Buddhism uh, in the 3rd century BC. And of course, there were the Buddhists. Now, we know that uh, <coughs> there was a lot of contention inside the, uh, inside, the, uh, inside the court. And it is very likely that uh, Ashoka uh, basically sided with the, Buddhist, uh, with the Buddhists uh, for political reasons because the rest of his family were either Jains or Ajivikas. So there was a political reason why he took on uh, 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 Buddhism. And interestingly, he became a Buddhist before, and I want to emphasize this, before he invaded Kalinga. Now the conventional story is that at some point, a few, several years after he had become the emperor, uh, Ashoka invaded uh, Kalinga. Uh, he massacred a lot of people and then he felt very sorry about it and he converted to Buddhism and became a pacifist. That's the, the storyline. But we know for sure, in fact, from inscriptions that he was already a Buddhist when he invaded Kalinga. Moreover, having carried out these big massacres, we are told he felt very sorry about it because he told us, how do we know this? Because he said so in his uh, inscriptions. Now it turns out, and I personally have uh, looked into this by uh, go, heading to uh, uh, Odisha and looking up his inscriptions in Odisha. It is very interesting. None of his inscriptions in Odisha apologize, make any apology for his invasion. Now surely, 
if you were interested in apologizing to anybody and you are feeling so sad about his uh, treatment of the Kalingans, the one bunch of people to whom he should be apologizing should be the Odia. But in Odisha there is none. In fact, the place where <coughs> his apology, so called apology is written is far away. Those inscriptions are now in Pakistan. Even worse, if you read through those inscriptions properly instead of just the little bits that are put inside the textbooks, it gives you a very different picture. In the very same inscription where Ashoka apologizes, oh you know I feel regret for having killed so many uh, Kalingans. In the very same inscription, the very next paragraph makes the following statement. However, you forest tribes do not think just because I am feeling uh, some regret having killing, killed all these Kalingans, do not think that I will not treat you in the, exactly the same way if you do not behave yourself. Now if you read the whole thing, the, the, the impression you get is a completely different one. Basically what he is saying is, look, I went and killed a whole bunch of those guys, feeling a little sorry about it, but you guys do not behave, you are going to get the same treatment. Do not take my word for this. Read that inscription yourself. It's on. It's available in various places online. I'm amazed that more people don't make a fuss about it. But this doesn't end here. Not only does his is his regret suspect. Ashoka then carried out a number of other massacres. He there is at least two massacres that are clearly mentioned in a book called Ashoka Vadana, which is a, a, a Sri Lankan Buddhist text which is widely used by the historians to uh, write the history of Ashoka. There is one case in which he killed 18,000 Ajivikas in Bengal. And there is another case which is quite scary in modern context is that there was a Jain who, who created a uh, drawing of Buddha where he basically showed either a Buddha or a Buddhist uh, bowing to uh, a Jain Tirthankara. So his family was essentially locked up inside the house including his whole family, kids and everybody and set on fire. And then Ashoka said that he would provide a gold coin for every Jain person's head that could be brought to him. And this carried on till eventually the fanaticism went to such an extent that somebody mistook his last remaining brother Tissa who was a, and chopped off his head and brought his head. And that is when the madness stopped. Now, Whenever I point this out to mainstream historians, they said, oh, you know, this is not really true because, you know, this was perhaps inserted into the story um, a couple of hundred years later uh, by fanatical uh, Sri Lankan Buddhists. So I said, uh, that's uh, entirely possible. But should you be thinking about this, uh, 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 should you not be also taking the same skepticism uh, and applying it to the rest of the text that extols Ashoka for being such a great king. And in fact, the storyline that I have just laid out in front of you is based on exactly the same inscriptions and exactly the same texts that are used by mainstream historians. All of which incidentally are available online. Do not take my word for it. You can search this up all online. Now, of course, given the length of time and uh, that has passed, uh, it is entirely possible <clears throat> that my story is also just as weak uh, as the one that is being uh, taught in the mainstream and I accept it. But the fact of the matter is, firstly, this whole story 
is based on very little evidence. Two, the evidence as it exists seems to support my story and not that of the mainstream. So, at the very least, why do not the mainstream historians mention that there is an alternative way of thinking about it? In fact, many books have recently been published and there is even a serial now going on about Ashoka which simply whitewash and do not even mention these great massacres of Ajivikas and Jains that, uh, that Ashoka carried down. But there is even greater evidence of why Ashoka was not such a great chap. And that evidence is there in full display to anybody who, who bothers to visit Bhubaneswar. Just outside Bhubaneswar, there is a cave and a hill and a cave called Hathi Gumpha, where there is an uh, inscription by a person called king called Kharavela. Kharavela was an Uriya king who was a couple of generations after Ashoka. By this time, the empire of Ashoka had collapsed. Now, this is one important point here. Firstly, that Ashoka usurped an empire that existed and was functioning perfectly well. His empire collapsed while he was still alive. He was such a great king. Why did his kingdom collapse while he was still alive? And two generations later, Kalinga was actually free. And more interestingly is what Kharavela then says in his inscription. Kharavela says that I went to Pataliputra and I brought back the Jain idols that were taken away from us. I have then made the king of Pataliputra bend to me. What is he saying? He is saying I have destroyed the Mauryan Empire. He doesn't have to say that these were the chaps who came and invaded us. And then he places this inscription in a very interesting place. He places them in Hafi Gumpha. Now, if you go on a clear day and you don't have to have from the smog of Bhubaneswar and you look across from Hathi Gumpha, across Bhubaneswar onto the other side, there is another hill. It's called Dhauli Hill. What does Dhauli Hill have? It has Ashoka's inscription. So, what is Karavela saying? That you, Ashoka, you came here, you carried out this massacre. We remember. I went to Pataliputra and destroyed your empire. I brought back the Jain idols. And very, very interesting how he does this. So, the point is, the whole legend of Ashoka, both in terms of the text that exist, as well as the behavior of subsequent uh, rulers towards the Mauryans, clearly show that this whole Ashokan project was an essentially a failure. If anything, it was the first large-scale act of religious uh, genocide ever carried out in Indian history. Um, and thank, uh, uh, thankfully, uh, you know, um, uh, this would not be too common for a long time. Of course, in medieval times, we would have this, but at least in ancient times, it would be uh, an exception to Indian history. Now, I then began to dig into why on earth did we end up with this great story about Ashoka. It turns out that in the Indian <coughs> tradition, Ashoka is not considered a great king. In fact, he was almost everything but forgotten in the Indian tradition, which is surely the best punishment that is possible to a king who wanted to perpetuate his, his myth. And he was rediscovered by the British in the 19th century by virtue of having figured out the Brahmi uh, inscriptions that were left behind by Ashoka because many people couldn't read it. So they, when they began to read those inscriptions, they suddenly discovered that there was this king somewhere out there. 
and, <coughs> and Princip and others began to talk about this king and then finally after some effort they figured out that it was this king Kalashoka who had put together this, uh, uh, these inscriptions. Now, in this context, it is quite interesting that it was the British who began to dig out the fact that even Ashoka existed. But his elevation to being the great is of even more recent uh, origin. It does goes back to no more than the 1920s and 1930s. And it turns out the reason that he was very useful is entirely related to uh, uh, the rise of Nehruvian socialism. You see, when you were in the 1920s and especially in the 1930s, it became pretty clear that in not too much time, uh, India would become a free country. Now, <clears throat> at that time, consequently, the, the younger uh, generation of leaders who were coming up wanted essentially to create a lineage for their ideological viewpoints. Now, there was a real problem if you happen to be Nehru or one of the socialists because essentially the obvious place to look for a lineage for your thoughts was to look at the Arthashastra. Now, the Arthashastra is entirely inconvenient to anybody trying to promote socialism because essentially, and by the way, those of you who think he was Machiavelli of India also haven't read the Arthashastra. Arthashastra has got nothing to do with Machiavelli at all. It is a text very well written with about how to run an empire once you have created it. And it was created by a guy who actually created one of the world's greatest empires. So, you know, unlike Machiavelli who was a small time political advisor, Chanakya was a guy who set up a serious empire. It is also not about spies and uh, other things. Yes, there are some sections about internal security where spies and, uh, and foreign policy and all that is there. But it also talks about municipal laws, it talks about taxation, it talks about all kinds of other uh, issues that are re related to how to run a kingdom. But the principles on which it is based is, is essentially what I would call a strong but limited state. What do I mean by a strong but limited state? So the Chanakyan state <coughs> was essentially a state which concerned itself with the following activities, defense, internal security, infrastructure and municipal order, coinage, taxation, um, and some very broad big picture things. It was quite clearly not a welfareist state. In fact, there are many, many instances where Chanakya clearly goes out there and says that the state should not interfere in the lives of people. And one of them is very clear. It is a discussion on prohibition where basically Chanakya makes the case that this is ridiculous that others are talking about, you know, interfering in people's lives and enforcing a prohibition. So as long as people are not, you know, uh, are enjoying themselves and not interfering with public order, we should never have prohibition. He actually says this. So it was very clearly about having a strong state. So in those areas where the state is paramount, Chanakya had no sense of humor. But he was also very clear that beyond those limited areas where the state was paramount, the state should not uh, expand itself. So it was clearly not about interfering in people's lives. It's clearly not a welfare state. Yes, you, you know, uh, uh, the areas of intervention, yes, if there is a, a natural calamity, the state should intervene. That, but that is not uh, that is not welfareism in, in, in any meaningful sense. It's an it's emergency uh, uh, rescue work. 
Now, when Nehru and, and, and the socialists found this as an inconvenient fact, they began to look through Indian history and look for somebody who fitted their worldview. And that is when they came across Ashoka's nice inscriptions. And in those inscriptions, Ashoka continuously talks about how to interfere with people's lives. In fact, he creates an entire cadre of people called the Dharma Mahamantas, what we today would call the religious police. And he instructs people that you shall not have a peacock on Monday, have a pigeon on Thursday, you will not deal this. And in fact, he literally goes all the way to say that my, all these officials that we have created, they are like, uh, I have created them in the same way that a parent gives his children to a nanny in the same way I have given you these. He literally talks about a nanny state. So it is of course, if you happen to be a Fabian socialist, think it's a wonderful idea. So you dig out this character, dust him off from history, quietly hide all the massacres he did, and then you present him Ashoka the Great. And essentially, this is the history of Ashoka. It's a completely fabricated story, pulled out of basically from oblivion by the British who had other reasons to doing it. But having brought him out, it was really the Nehruvian socialists who then pushed him up to becoming this great uh, uh, king uh, because it essentially suited their story and then they of course whitewashed everything around him. Now, I have spoken for quite some time right now, but the point I have been trying to make so far is that a very large part of our history that we read is actually bunkum. It is actually almost even a interested enthusiast like me spends a little bit of time digging, the, uh, digging up stuff will very quickly find that it is mostly nonsense. Um, now, this of course means that our history needs to be written. Um, whether professional historians do it or amateurs do it, I don't know. But it is the case that we now need to get on with the job of digging up our own history, telling it from our own uh, perspective. Because if we do not do this, uh, the tragedy will be that it will be done for us by others, for their own agenda. So now the good news is that <clears throat> travel is much easier. Much of the material is now available either online or you can simply buy it off Amazon. Uh, so it is no longer so easy to simply fool everybody all the time. And so one of the things I am doing as my own agenda is to begin to actually dig up some of these things and begin to present it to people like you. And to show you that uh, how ridiculous some of these assertions of our history books are. Um, and <clears throat> uh, in fact, I have this, this point about Ashoka I actually wrote about two months ago in an article which I published and went viral on the net. Many of you may have actually read it. Uh, and it's quite amusing that uh, you know, the, the, the magazine that published it then went and contacted some of the leading authorities on Mauryan India and asked them to write a rebut. And on every single case, the response they got, he said, you know what uh, he's saying is, you know, it's a tricky issue. Now, when mainstream historians say that they cannot respond to complete undermining of everything they've written by saying that it's a tricky issue, it suggests to me that maybe I'm onto something. So with that, I'm going to stop um, and I'm happy to uh, answer Q&A. Thanks. Yes. How history has been written in, in our uh, uh, like thousand years, how our invasion.
various reports there is given us. So when currently in India what happens is there are conflicting ideologies. So whatever government comes in power, whatever who has whosoever has the charge, so they try to write history from their own perspective. Yes. So there are 29 states, every state can Every state can have their own uh, type of history books. Yep. So some people are reading, uh, you know, one uh, one perspective, and the other people are reading other perspective. So it is, uh, you know, so it's not uniting India. Moreover, it's dividing India on the basis of uh, how they perceive ideas. So don't you? Uh, how do you take it? Like how we can yep. create a mainstream now, research, dispassionate research yep. about so history? One thing, let it be very clear that all history is written from some perspective. Now, all I'm arguing is that two things. One is that there is no particular reason why <coughs> they, we should spend uh, in you know 70 years after independence, we should be reading history from a colonial perspective or the perspective of a certain dynasty. We should have an Indian perspective. It will still be a perspective, uh, but it will at least be a perspective at least more broadly in sync with which, which is our story. Of course, that story will be from, uh, you know, you are saying that it should be entirely free of bias. Maybe not, but it will be our bias. Why is it, why is that a bad thing? It's not, number one. Number two, however, even if we do tell our own story from our perspective, it is very important that at least we make sure that we stick to the evidence. Now, one of the biggest problems of Indian history writing is that most people don't even bother with the evidence. Uh, and it's uh, quite astonishing that in fact it comes across even more clearly in my new book that I'm writing on the Indian Ocean. I have actually discovered that most of the Indian historians essentially hang out in various uh, talking shops in Delhi and have not visited many, most of the major sites that they are writing about. It is absolutely astonishing. Uh, I've talked about, uh, you know, uh, many of the places like Muzavis, which is a major port in, um, in Kerala. Uh, I was amazed that I was one of the very, very few people who actually goes and visits many of these sites. Similarly, when I talked about Karavela and other things, uh, there is actually the place where um, the um, Ashoka uh, attacked the capital of Kalinga, which was called Toshali, and completely destroyed it. That uh, the, the excavations have found Toshali. And I went to the place to do a few years ago to look up that site. And the ex uh, archaeologist told me that I am the first person who can be termed a histo uh, historian to have visited that place. Just think about it. This is one of the most important events in Indian history and nobody has bothered to look into it. But there are many such instances. I, I mean, I, as, a, as an amateur, I have gone around to many, many places and I have been stunned that when you read the textbook, uh, it makes no sense. But when you go and read the original source, you know, whoever it is, and you read it and you just visit the place, your completely different story comes up, comes up. And the reason this is happening is that nobody is bothering to look at the evidence. And it is not just, and the reason people are getting away with it is because even those who are questioning uh, these uh, uh, mainstream historians are also themselves not bothering to do it. So we have this entire debate which is going on in a vacuum without any evidence. So very important before we get into anything else that we look at the hard evidence, we present it clearly. It is okay to have a perspective, it is okay to have your own interpretation. But the facts must be placed as they are. And that is, I think, very important. But as I mentioned, um, you know, sure, any, any, any perspective will have a certain bias. So what? But it will be our bias.
questions. Yes. The first I want to <coughs> the first I want to ask you is to define what textbooks you're talking about because uh, I am a history student. Uh, I study in Delhi University, and more or less the information that you gave out on Ashoka, it is available. There is a book by Upinder Singh. I hope you read it. Yes. That's the standard textbook. Yeah, yeah, that's the standard textbook. That's the most, the, like, it's the book that gives out on the surface and it has a lot of information that you... Yes, so now, now let me tell you. First of all, most of the history people read, you are a history MA student or maybe, right? Most of the people who will read history is there, is going to basically get it from their school textbooks. The school textbooks, which is 99% of what they learned about, say, Ashoka, does not contain all of this, number one, right? Why not? Uh, at why give completely the false view, number one. Number two, even when you're talking about, you have a book written very recently by Nayanjot Lahiri on Ashoka. She does not at all bring any of this out. Incidentally, she does not get into Ashoka Vadana at all. I have read this book. I have it with me. I haven't brought it here. But she does not bring it out. Why? I would be at least have, have some uh, respect if she talked about it and say, okay, I have this view on the matter. It's just fine. But to have used the Ashoka Vadana and then to have left out the critical bits where Ashoka is clearly shown to be a tyrant is just astonishing. And my point is, look, I am not saying that uh, maybe many of the things I mentioned are later insertions, but so it's in the same text. Why not take your same skepticism to the whole text? Like it was, uh, what yes. is the Indian uh, perspective? that you think that should be added and it is whatever we write we are indians we should write it no no because uh, <laughs> as a history student we get to read about a lot of schools yeah history. that's fine we get to read the marxist school yes we get to read the orientalist school we get to read a lot of schools because even if you're talking about the british school yes there were paternalists there were orientalists yes and uh, there were people like metcalf and uh, there were people like monroe and they all wrote about it and you can't really say that there is one body of text which is the British uh, school. No, no, of course I'm simplifying for work purposes, and, I'm aware of that. And just like that, just as it was in the British, you can't really say because uh, we get to read a lot of uh, history books right now. Yes. And on the same issue, we have differing opinions and that will always be. No, no, that's fine, that's fair enough. All, all these books yes. So my, ob my objection largely is to twofold. One is that the evidence is very often simply ignored or hidden, which is actually a lie. So I have no problem with interpretation. But first point is that a lot of the evidence is deliberately, and I gave you the example of Ashoka. There's just one example. I can give you lots more. Um, uh, till recently, till people dig up, dug up stuff on Tipu Sultan. I mean, he was being turned up as a national hero. So clearly, there is one problem with evidence, which is simply systematically uh, presented to preserve. Yeah, archaeology texts, whatever it is. Yeah, so uh, it can be text also, whatever it is. Whatever the evidence is, it can be genetics also. Uh, whatever the evidence is, the hard evidence has to be presented. If you are honest um, historian, you should present the. Then you can interpret what you want. So the first problem is simply that there is a great amount of dishonesty in not presenting the evidence. The second point of the matter is. Yes, there are different schools of thought even within the Marxists and so on. But you see what has happened and systematically happened and you will appreciate this uh, that 
a few schools of thought have definitely heavily dominated the discussion. You cannot deny that, number one. Number two, there are many layers of things that are embedded into our history which we simply accept without really uh, uh, getting discussions about. Uh, much of it is simply, yeah, we do not, and I just gave you the example. Our interaction with Islam is always presented as great invasion. Why not about trade? Why is there not greater discussion? Indian influence on Southeast Asia, but in fact also huge amount of Southeast Asian influence on India. There is a lot of evidence of this. Any, I live in Southeast Asia, there is evidence everywhere, but no history book talks about it. Hmm. What level of history books are we talking about? Uh, the first point I made was about school level textbooks, which I said essentially do not even get into this. Right? They basically given... School level physics textbooks similarly don't get into... Uh, no, maybe they don't. No, maybe they don't, but they do not. They do not start up by saying, uh, uh, you know, we will we will now talk about uh, the sun going uh, uh, around the earth, and then we will move on to the earth going around the sun. They right, so they do not. They do not have actual lies embedded there. They may not tell you the full extent of the facts, but they do not have embedded lies there. The point I'm making about the Indian textbooks are that the school textbooks have embedded lies in them. Yes. Uh, one of the reasons cited by these eminent historians is uh, that if they are being presented the truth, <coughs> there will be some unrest uh, socially and politically. That is the reason they, they have, and I have actually heard this in one of the history congress last year. This might create some kind of unrest uh, in public in general. No, why not just present the facts? What is the problem with presenting the facts? They are the facts. Otherwise, let's say that's not a history. It is basically some... So, the point I'm making is, interpretation is one thing. At least, let's start with being honest about the facts. <coughs> no, of course there was an invasion. It's, it's basically clearly obvious. Now, you're never going to have... You see, in every country, before you have peace, you have... Even, for example, you take other multicultural societies, like South Africa, which happened very recently. Uh, went through apartheid and began non-apartheid. They had something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and they went through a whole process of truth-telling. Everybody after the end of it say, this is what happened. Let's be frank, this is what happened. So unless you are at least honest about your own past, then why are we even bothering with it? Then let us not complain that Indians are not interested in the history because at the end of it we know even if we do not know it, I cannot articulate it, the average person knows that this is a lie. And consequently, they don't care about it. And another recognition most of the time is that you are going to add history on uh, all other people. What do you mean? Uh, my point is, what, let us have an honest discussion of what the facts are. Then different people, there is, you can have a Hindutva history as well, you can have a Marxist history, how is a Hindutva history, first of all, any worse than a Marxist history or any other? Everybody has right to opinion. They do not have a right to their facts. So, at the very least, the facts need to be told clearly. After that, different people can have the opinions. And I think, let a different, thousand different opinions uh, flourish. It's okay. Personally, from what I've seen, usually, it's not a question on the facts that creates these differences. Well, actually it is. Now, some of it is pure lies. I just gave you the example of... Okay, 
um, uh, introduce uh, right wing lies into the text. Now my view would be that is no excuse for leaving uh, left wing and colonial lies in the text. Right. So my view is the only way you can deal with this problem is the following way. First of all clearly state what are your sources and what are the facts. Okay. Once you have stated what the clear facts are then you say that these above facts are can be interpreted to tell this story, this story, this story. At least give some. Now this will have two interesting impacts. One is it will be more honest first of all. Secondly, our history books will become vastly more interesting because rather than it becoming about a series of random dates, it will be about the exploring of our past. So I think that is a point I made in a, uh, some time ago in a, 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 a Mint uh, article where I basically said, you know, let, let's put the facts down as best we know them and let's, let there be different opinions, let there be also a right wing view. And you tell people that yeah, this is opinion or this opinion. Hai. So what is actually happening is because the facts are not being brought out. So today if I say that Babur said this in his Babur Nama, that is not projected as a fact. Yes. If I say this, it is projected as a right wing lie. Yes. So that is, the, that is, my, that is where my objection lies. Exactly. Yes. Sorry. Uh, uh, Abhinav. Here you stand up and… Uh, you see India has been a culture which has very strong political. Yes. Especially when we come down to the subaltern history. Yes. This history has never been studied. In India. Yes. It has been as a myth making or something. Up until now, in the last 10 years, we see lots of people are studying history from the left, but they are saying this is an attempt at Sanskritization. The example of Raja Suhail Dev is being dismissed as an attempt at Sanskritization, but at the same time, they say they go and write a book, uh, uh, the, the Warrior Saint. The Shahid Amin wrote a book, uh, Warrior Saint, on the Sayyid Salar Masood. So, how do you think that we history in India? So I think oral histories are really important. Uh, as I said, because we were uh, ruled much of the mainstream history is the history of foreign invaders, written by foreign invaders. So to the extent that our own history exists at all <laughs> is actually in these oral histories. And in fact, uh, this Raja Suhail Dev story, actually I know most of, uh, about it from you. Because, and how did you know about it? Because this is the oral history of the Parsis, right? So, I think there is a great case for writing it. I am just sad that not enough people are taking this seriously enough. And uh, to the extent that I know uh, this history, it's very serious. But they are going about undermining. Yes. Either as a, either as a myth making in the arbitrary mode hmm. or as a subjectivity. Yeah, so the point of the matter is there is no point in arguing against it. You have to provide the alternative, what you think is the. Uh, first of all, put down what the facts of the story as best known are. And then try and provide your interpretation of it. They can interpret their way or another interpretation and that's fine. Let a million interpretations exist. Is Indian history too hung up on Delhi and Mughal Yes, they are because you see because the control of Delhi is where it's again go it is again a lot to do with the history of who controls. So basically it was the history of those who control the Delhi Sultanate. And that is the, the perspective, perspective in which it was hidden. So now when the British came in, they did not want to encourage the new history from the perspective of the locals because that all, they would much rather see themselves as, oh, you know, the Indians always keep losing all these wars. They are basically a slave people. And we are just replacing the previous bad lot of rulers with us who are a good lot of rulers. But guess what? You guys cannot be rulers. And so then you have a British history which 
maybe initially moves to Calcutta, but it's still from it's a central history. It's a history of a centralized, and consequently, we therefore systematically delete out of it these histories of the extremes, uh, and particularly histories of things that could be construed as resistance. So that is why Lashid Barfukon or the Vijayanagar Empire or uh, 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 Travancore or for that matter the history of Mewad are systematically not presented into this storyline. Hence the Maratha Empire is a very inconvenient to the whole narrative. I would like to add Chola Empire. Cholas? Yes. The fact that the Chola Empire was so vast today that people did go to places like Indonesia and go to Asia. And, and today, no, and, and, and by the way, incidentally, the Cholas were very late in the game. Um, they were. Uh, yes, and in fact, uh, my next book, which is a history of the Indian Ocean, uh, is a lot about um, the Uriyas, who in fact went and uh, took Indian. They were. It was before the Tamils. It was the Uriya who were the great merchants of the East, uh, Eastern Indian Ocean. Um, uh, they went all over. They pioneered routes all over, all the way to Indo uh, to uh, Vietnam. And uh, they colonized Sri Lanka. In fact, the majority population today of Sri Lanka is of Uriya Bengali. The Sinhalese are of Uriya Bengali origin uh, because um, of these huge merchant ships that were coming from what is now uh, the area between what is now Hooghly River, that's, uh, that is now in Bengal, going all the way to Chilika Lake. That entire zone was full of ports. And they were coming down and they were settling in uh, 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 Sri Lanka. And of course, the oral history, since we were talking about earlier, it's amazing how interesting it gels once you begin to break out of these, uh, the outside worldview and begin to look in our own traditions. So why do they, for example, the Sri Lankans call themselves the Singhala, the lion people? Why do they call themselves? Because in their origin myth, a king called Vijaya, a prince called Vijaya came and Vijaya came from a kingdom called Singhapura. And his grandfather was a lion who had married a human princess. Now it's quite interesting that the area generally from which they had come is also to this day a major area for Narasimha worship. Even today if you go to Puri, when the Puri major festival happens, Jagannath festival, the prasad is even today first given to a temple dedicated to Narasimha. Because that is the old uh, core uh, god of that area. Uh, and equally, uh, you have, of course, uh, Durga's lion, which also comes from that same area. So the veneration of the lion as a major symbol of that part of India, uh, which is particularly interesting because it's tiger country and not lion country, um, is a very strong tradition, uh, which the, these people then took to, uh, to Sri Lanka and, and have kept it there. And it's quite interesting, the, the battle between the Singhalese and the Tamils and then these old totems come out. On one side is the lion and of course on the other side you have the LTT tigers. Hi. Yes, yeah, sorry, there's a gentleman right at the back who has been, okay. yeah. My name is Abhimanya Gupta and I'm working with William Darlimple and uh, I was like really uh, amazed to listen whatever you said. Um, you know, uh, the uh, biggest thing that you said about the propaganda basically. So the best example that we have is the most terrible movie that I've ever seen is 300 where they're actually showing that how the Greeks are actually superior to the Persians. Yeah. Because it is actually setting in that uh, US propaganda that why Iranians are bad even now. 
they were bad 200 yes. 2000 years ago as yeah. well and basically the whites are actually liberating uh, the world from the tyrant no but there is there is plenty yeah. of this and i'll give you we, yeah. we all watch tarzan and uh, phantom comics what is the story really about so white guy essentially is required to look after all these natives so basically what is the subliminal message that you know don't mind us if we are just running the show in your country because you know otherwise you guys can't really run the show so this is subliminally done in many many ways yeah. so uh, so uh, i was researching researching yeah. and every uh, like ever since we were born we are, uh, uh, the first uh, like the most important history that we read is the egyptian history and we always see the pharaohs as whites but now it has uh, it has come out that the pharaohs were always black and their slaves were whites Potentially, now, I don't know. You know, uh, now, I don't know about yeah. this particular history, but yeah. it's possible. So, uh, like you said about the uh, like about the oral history, even Homer's Odysseus, it was written 500 years after Tro the Trojan War was over, and basically the Homer who has written uh, the Trojan history is not actually the Homer who was there who witnessed the Trojan War. Entirely possible. Yeah. I don't know enough about this, but yeah. I, I can tell you that there is a lot of this even in Indian history. Just to give an example since I was talking about the Aryan invasion theory, the history was that they came in horses with iron weapons and they, you know, went through. It turns out that um, iron is an Indian invention. And the earliest place in the world where iron is systematically used is not even in northern India. It's actually in and around the Godavari belt. In fact, the oldest, recently they found 2200 BC uh, iron in, in, inside Hyderabad, uh, um, university campus, they have discovered iron, wep uh, iron weapons and all kinds of iron things, uh, 2000 to 2200 BC. Uh, these are the oldest systematic use of iron anywhere in the world. Uh, so far from being an, uh, a, a technological advantage of chaps coming in from the Central Asia, this was a technological advantage the locals had over the foreigners. Not only that, 600 years after this, in about 1370 BC, we actually have a bunch of Vedic God worshipping uh, uh, people who uh, conquer northern Iraq, a group called the Mitanni. And the Mitanni not only worship Vedic Gods, they also, also incidentally introduce an Indian technology, iron. Now to say that these chaps came from Central Asia is ridiculous. There is no sign of use of Central Asia of either Vedic Gods or of iron. In fact, it's not even clear that they were the first people to uh, domesticate the horse because they actually, the, some of the earliest uh, uh, signs of horse are actually also in India, Neolithic sites uh, in and around Allahabad. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, this whole storyline is uh, basically rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to point, I may make some small comment. Actually, yeah. I believe, what my belief has been, there's been a lot of debates going on in history. Yeah. Romila Thapar has been writing one book and another book on, on uh, Ashoka yeah. and the Mauryas. And Nayanjot Lahiri came out with a recent book on Ashoka. So there are a lot of debates and I find, I, what I believe is that lay people don't actually care. The books are there out there for debate. But actually the people are academics have a monopoly over this debate. So lay people don't actually are, don't, are not bothered by this debate, mostly. They do not go and read these books maybe. They are the because no, they have so been I, for a long time. No, no, you're right that ultimately specialists have a huge advantage in any field, not just in history. This will be true of physics and true of, and in fact, uh, I forget who a very famous, <coughs> famous uh, scientist uh, made the comment that uh, 
all progress in science happens one funeral at a time. So, just imagine that if this is true of science which is supposedly as objective as it gets, um, then in subjective uh, fields like history writing or many other fields as well, uh, uh, this is obviously going to be the case. Uh, all I am trying to do here is uh, to point out that what is presented as fact to much of us uh, is not the case. Um, I know many people have suspected this for a while, but I am just taking a few instances and bringing this up uh, as an issue because I think it is very important for any civilization, particularly one of which we are very proud of and most people here would say um, um, you know uh, that we are very, very proud of our civilization, but let us be honest about it, there is not everything about it is great. Um, I chose particularly Ashoka because it would uh, you know get, get away from uh, daily debates on uh, religious identity and all that which are of today. Ashoka is relatively uh, more distant to it and that is why I specifically chose Ashoka because then I can relative you know relative to other characters of human history I can show you that even in this case um, you can you can uh, see how much of it is uh, fudged. Now I am not saying that the, this is therefore uh, you know uh, we should not read history. I think it is important to that to recognize uh, the, the, its nature. Um, after all uh, forget about events that happened 2400 years ago, uh, even events that happened in last week are furiously debated in columns uh, every day uh, in the newspapers. So, it is not that surprising that we have different views on what happened so long ago. Um, so, I am not therefore very squeamish about um, there being different interpretations. It is the nature of human beings, it world would be a boring place if we all agreed on everything. So, that is not what I am squeamish about. What I am squeamish about is two things. One is a blatant um, misuse of evidence. I think the evidence has to be clear, continuously updated. It is not a static evidence as well. We are continuously doing archaeology, finding new texts, doing genetics, uh, so climate science which has, which I, have, I can tell you will completely change many of the ways we think about the coastline of India that we see today is actually a relatively recent phenomena. This coastline is alive, it is continuously changing. Uh, climate is continuously changing, we are having one of the warmest uh, winters in history, but let me assure you there have been many episodes through history where this thing has happened. Uh, one of the great events of our history has been the drying up of the Saraswati river, which uh, <laughs> what a cataclysmic event. So, uh, climate history, all these, all these um, uh, pieces of information are continuously being updated. Um, uh, we need to be honest about what this uh, information is and continuously update it. So, that is one, one evidence based. The second is that we must allow for a variety of interpretations to flourish as long as they are reasonably logical, um, it is fine. Um, it, my objection mainly is to the monopolization of this narrative by a relatively small group of people for blatantly political objectives. Um, that have continued to happen till this day. Now, uh, I made this big hoo-ha about uh, Nehru. There are people here who may be great admirers of Nehru. That is perfectly fine. But I have made my case of why I think he did it. And by the way, it is not a completely outrageous uh, statement about Nehru because Nehru was a great history maker. He wrote history himself, but he also created his own aura in many ways. I mean, he is, he is a, here is a man who awarded himself the Bharat Ratna. Uh, here is a man who while he was prime minister instituted his own birthday as children's day. Uh, 
And then, so this is not a person who is not unaware of the processes that I am talking about. He is very well aware of this. So, therefore, when we deal with, and of course, 23rd, we may find out some more interesting things about him. So, wait till that. Although, I will be very surprised if the most juicy files still exist. I will be very, very surprised. I think most of the Netaji files have already been sanitized long ago. But anyway, never mind. Yeah, I have, a, I have a gentleman there right at the back. No, you didn't. Okay. Yes, so the lady here has been, wants to say something. Reference to the comparison made between uh, Machiavelli and uh, uh, Chanakya. Uh, you said that Chanakya speaks uh, both about uh, acquiring power and consolidation of power, whereas Machiavelli doesn't do that. Uh, but I think his book, The Prince, a three-fourth of is uh, definitely about acquiring power. But one-fourth of it also deals with consolidation of power. <laughs> but it's, he's dealing, uh, yeah. but you see Machiavelli only deals with power. If you read the Arthashastra, it's not, it, there, there is obviously as a, as, as a, he's talking about the state, so it's a maintenance of power. Uh, most of it is about maintenance of power, not about acquisition. Maintenance of power is an important underlying theme in it. Yes, I, but I, but uh, the thing about the book, it's a very different book. It, it talks about taxation, it talks about municipal issues, it talks about foreign policy. In that context, it also talks about power, which is very different from Machiavelli. He is not concerned about governance at all, yeah. whereas the Arthashastra is all about governance. Yeah, that could have been for a lot of reasons, I feel. And th that, no, that's they may a, be different. So, a, I'm, all I am saying is that Machiavelli and uh, Chanakya being equated is ridiculous, because obviously any book written on yes, statecraft is about power. But, but they are totally different books, written by totally different levels of people. Uh, one guy is a small time advisor to a small kingdom in Italy. Here is a, you know, the creator of one of the greatest empires in human history, not just in Indian history. And then the book is a much more sophisticated book about governance and all kinds of other things. Machiavelli is basically about a court intrigue. Uh, I am from political science and yeah. it's, I find it quite ridiculous when Chanakya is referred to as the Indian Machiavelli. Yeah. It has always baffled me a lot. Yeah, because Why just, should he be called uh, yeah, it's Indian like, Machiavelli? Yeah, yeah, it's like exactly. So, you know, it's like being. No, Kalidan and Shakespeare, at least they're at this yeah. thing level. But here, it's, they are not even at the same level. It's like calling, uh, calling uh, you know, um, Tendulkar after some uh, Ranji level player. <laughs> Another is that in Jharkhand, a lot of excavations are happening and a lot of uh, 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 things are being uh, yes. discovered. Uh, monoliths have been discovered yes. in the in the in, in past one year, but nothing of um, uh, no sort of um, discussion is happening around that. Not even in the historical in the in the. Well, some of it, to be fair, is very uh, very young, so we don't know what it means. Yeah. But some of it is very interesting from a different perspective, which is one of the things that I've made earlier is the issue about iron. Uh, it is very clear now that iron was an Indian innovation. And the use of iron spread not, not only was it an Indian innovation, it is a central South Indian innovation, basically Jharkhand, Godavari, that kind of zone. Yeah, so which continuously fits interestingly with our own view of history, which is there in the epics. Now, if you look at the epics, <clears throat> I'm not looking at the I'm not looking at the historicity of the events themselves, but the general description of the world that I'm talking about, one, the geography, but also if you look at it, the very powerful kingdoms in the epics are not in the northwest as the Aryan invasion theory would let you suggest. Who are the great powerful empires of say the Mahabharata? It is Magad, Jarasandha's Magad. 
he is powerful enough to drive even Krishna away to uh, go to Gujarat. Who is the powerful uh, kingdom of, uh, of he is in southern, the, the Rakshasas of Ravan, the Rakshasas are from central India, they, they incidentally they are not from Sri Lanka, they, it was Kuber who went to Sri Lanka and set up an empire and he shifted his capital there. They are basically central Asian, uh, central uh, Indians uh, and uh, they are Bhargavas in fact, even to this day the Bhargavas of Madhya Pradesh consider Ravan to be one of their own. Um, so they are Brahmins from central India. So this is, it turns out to be a major area of activity and it turns out that they had, uh, their iron was clearly something that was heavily used in this part of the world and it fits in with our own view of history. So even if the storyline is, uh, is make-believe, uh, it is, you know, even, even uh, people who are writing epics are usually placing it in the context of their times. So the, the, the places they are talking about are real. Uh, even today modern fiction writers write about real places uh, and very often consequently through those writings you can tell uh, what the social context was. Uh, for example, it is quite clear uh, that you know North East India had a metrilineal system uh, even in ancient times, those who have read about Ulupi or Chitrangada and so on. So many of these things are, uh, the, the social contexts uh, uh, can be discerned from the text. In fact, they have a goddess named Panthobi and Panthobi, uh, uh, they, they, they say that um, since Hinduism came later to them, the Maite community of uh, Manipur, they say uh, that we still uh, celebrate Panthobi uh, and Panthobi, the, the way Panthobi dresses and the way she looks is quite similar to Durga. It's, yeah, it's, it's very possible, similar, but the you colors, see, the see, hair, you, you everything. You see, there's a lot of things going back and forth, migrations, again a point that I will make in my next book is that Indian history is written as if you know, there is some sort of a pipeline from Central Asia that goes to North India, then goes to South India and maybe a little bit goes to Southeast Asia. That is totally not how you see Indian history, particularly when you begin to take a maritime view of it. Okay. Uh, there were enormous migrations into India and in and out from the East. Uh, so uh, many of the tribes of East, uh, Eastern and uh, Central Eastern India are actually of Southeast Asian origin. Um, I mean, I'm not just talking about the ones that now still look oriental like the Khasis and so on, but even the Santals, the language, the Munda languages are actually all related to um, Khmer, which is Cambodian. And not only that, and we now have genetic proof that they are also migrants. So uh, there were migrations happening through the East as well. It's not just, you know, it's, it's and of course, Southern Indians were going up. And as I pointed out, there were periods in the Iron Age where the Southern Indians probably were the powerful Kingdom. So, it's a, rather than the Aryan invasion happening, it was southern India going up sometimes and coming down, mixing, all kinds of movements going on. Yes. So, yeah. Okay, two more questions. One here and one gentleman right at the end. Who is so, Sanjeev, um, yes. firstly, I want to say that I really enjoyed reading your book, The Line Thank of you. Seven Rivers. I also buy into your arguments that, you know, the history around, the maritime history around the Indian Ocean has not been as well explored as it should have been. A, a la large part of our history is more land-based. and But at the same time, there are some things which come to mind. The first thing being that uh, I never really walked out of school reading history there, feeling not proud about my country. I did come back and say that, you know, uh, this is a great country. I did read about 
you know, uh, some of your ancestors, your great-grand-uncles as well. Uh, so that was one part. What you're trying to say here, and I'm just trying to understand what you're trying to say, is that popular history, or there is something wrong with popular history as it is understood by the common people, but are you also uh, in some ways questioning academic history here, or history as it's taught in colleges and in you know, so, graduate so, school? I'm certainly questioning our general impressions of history. Mm -hmm. I am questioning a lot of the textbook history that we generally read in, particularly in high school, because most of us will not become history students. Sure. So I am questioning, certainly questioning academic history so, at that level. Okay. And even, and here I want, I will, I also do question a large part of what is taught even in universities, because, and I, I will come to it, a lot of it is, while yes, somewhere in there you can find all of this, but the way the questions in the text, uh, in the test papers are put up, the bits that are emphasized, it's all much more subtly done in a way that it ends up in a certain, only in one certain uh, dhara. So, so what you're essentially suggesting to us is some larger conspiracy here. And uh, in here a sense, I would yes. say is that that brings into question the entire study, the subject, everybody who's related to Indian history and the institution. Uh, yes, uh, it, is, it is the and fact. And that I find something. Which well, you will be amazed. Yes, I'll tell you why. You will be amazed to the extent to which uh, most of the history we today read is controlled by an extremely tiny group of people. Um, and I will not go into the long debate on this because I want to finish this discussion. Mm -hmm. But uh, it will not require you too much time to look into this to discover. In fact, uh, it's a tiny cabal who uh, systematically have kept out for almost seven decades alternative views of history. In relatively recent times, uh, people like Upinder who are somewhat more uh, open-minded have brought in some of these facts. Uh, but really, um, Dr. Upinder Singh, if anything, is an exception to this rule. Um, people like Nayanjot Lahiri, for example, I just gave the book on Ashoka. She's written a book on Ashoka using the Ashoka Vadana as one of the key texts in that and simply does not mention many of the dubious things. I mean, I would have been at least thought that it was worth mentioning some of the facts that do not go along with her narrative. But what you're here quoting is an anecdote to sort of color the entire... No, no, of course, I'm just giving, right? I can't give you whole statistics exactly. of it, but, but there are plenty of this. I mean, and this is even worse when non-Indians, there are some uh, history writing that are appalling. I mean, there's a book on Ashoka. I'm just sticking on Ashoka because otherwise we'll go into all kinds of different things. So just on Ashoka, one person, one this thing. There's a book written by a gentleman called Charles Allen. Okay, I don't know if you have anybody have read this book by Charles Allen on Ashoka. Now, it's quite interesting. 90% of that book has nothing to do with Ashoka. Most of the book is about how wonderful the Europeans were to have rediscovered a king who the, who the Indians had forgotten. And essentially what he says, and it's quite patronizing and in fact almost racist, how he says that, you know, you Indians don't know what is good for you and don't even know your history. It required us white chaps to come and tell you what it is. That is essentially what he says in that book. It's quite amazing that he gets away with it. I mean, if he had done an equivalent thing today in about black history in America, he would have been lynched. But please read this book to just understand how this historical narrative is simply told in this particular way. Sure. One final question, and, and, the, and this is related to you know, the issue of 
issue that you raised about uh, Fabian socialism and how it might have colored, you know, how we see Ashoka. But, you know, that might be the case, okay? Let me grant you as much. But what about the Aryan invasion theory? And, you know, there are reasons why the Aryan invasion theory was in vogue at certain points in time, and, you know, we can have differing views on that. But by, would say, for example, Nehru and his cabal sort of propound the Aryan invasion theory when, while it might have been socialistic, it was also deeply nationalist. We were talking about a new country emerging at that point in yes. time. Yes. So what happened is that in exchange for not messing with existing history, because that was not their focus, they were trying to insert things that were of importance to them. So this was one, not important. Secondly, it is quite interesting, I began to look into this, is that they continued to perpetuate certain myths which were colonial era. For one of them being that the Indians never had a sense of being a country. Okay, now I have actually, Land of Seven Rivers brought this out very clearly. Indians for a very long time had a sense of being a civilizational nation. Maybe not quite a political nation, but a civilizational nation. We have had a, I will just finish, let me finish this had a sense of this. By incidentally, this is true of many other countries, it is not unique to India. The Chinese have for a very long time had a sense of being a civilization. The Greeks fought with each other all the time, but they had a very clear sense of being a civilizational nation. And every time the Persians turned up, they united. So, the fact is that we have also similarly had a sense of being a civilizational nation for a long time. Yet, this is actually systematically downplayed in our textbooks till very recently. And not only that, as a corollary to it, the idea that Hinduism, for example, is not a religion. Now, why get into this? Because it again serves a purpose. After all, if a nation has existed for thousands of years, you cannot have a father of the nation, particularly not one in 20th century. You cannot have the chacha of the nation. <laughs> you see, so it has got a lot to do with the politics of it. By sim simply perpetuating a previous uh, thing, because it continues to serve a certain purpose. No, but there's a perfect example of what you say. Sorry to back it, but how we choose also which white voice we want to hear. We want to hear Wendy Doniger, but we don't want to hear Diana Eck, who's the head of the. Or Will Duran. Or Will Duran. But even I mean, Diana Eck is still living, huh, yeah. practicing, and heads the Divinity Department of Theology at Howard, whose wonderful book India: Sacred Geography talks about how, and she uses the example of Simon Sharma there, on how through the footsteps of pilgrims the boundaries of India and the borders of India, the landscape borders of India are perfectly depicted for thousands of years. But that's not, you will never hear anybody celebrating Diana Eck at all in India. But you will celebrate Betty Doniger. And I'm only saying, I'm not saying well, Betty Doniger is good or bad. I'm saying, and, and I'm actually adding to what Sandeep is saying and I absolutely agreeing with him, that there, that's a political choice on which voice you want to hear is basically a political choice. And that choice is, I have no problems, or I don't think Sajeev has a problem with anybody making their political choice, as long as we know that there are options. You see, the state power and patronage has been used for a certain way. I am just pointing out that there are other ways of thinking about the world. I think we need to really end this. There is a lady who has been really raising, I will then come to you. Okay. I, can we take both questions and I will answer them and then we will stop. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Okay. I would like to first say that I have been a history student in Delhi University nearly 30 years. I am glad we had professors who told us what history you are learning is crap. Excellent. Okay? And we were told the correct history is this. 
but please write these answers to get marks. Excellent. I am so happy. Since meeting for people like you and to challenge history that we are reading, my daughter is a history student today, and she does not like Indian history. Taught the way we are, what we are learning, she wants it to be. You know, she prefers German. I mean, she prefers you know the Greek history, the Roman history, the Egyptian history because they are actually rooted in their culture and tell the history the way it was by those people. So she, I mean, if I tell her today, she's missed something. She's going to howl because she would have loved to be here and attend this session. Hopefully, also a history writer because we need somebody to write those new histories. And yes, and she is interested in writing, so I really would have liked her to be here. But I will. We will follow up on this because Rahul is a masa. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so I have I have a gentleman there. I oh, yeah, just sorry. wanted to ask one yeah, sorry, yeah. thing. I'm saying you are doing amazing work, and I really applaud it from the core of my heart. I want to know what are the challenges you are facing here because I'm sure you are. To be I'll tell you the I'll you tell you are. the challenge. The main challenge I face is the fact that I do this for entertainment. I am an economist by profession. I also design cities, and I have a two or three other things I do. This I happen to do on the side, and I don't have time. I fund everything I do, so I I don't have the challenges others have, which is um, they need. If you're an academic, you need grants and all that. I fund everything. No, I'm talking in terms. No, no, I'll, I'll explain what my my problem. No, so I have no problem with. No, it makes no difference. You see, what I have done is I bypass them. Uh, I write popular history. I sell many more books than all of them combined, and so it makes no difference to me at all. My problem is simply writing enough of it. Right. Uh, I don't need grants. I don't need anything. Um, I simply need don't have time to write the stuff I know. Uh, I'm writing a book which will come out in August. Uh, I've already written another one because uh, which will come out, but that's not history. That's something else. That's fiction. Um, and I also am doing other professions. So my real problem is I need an army of young people like your daughter to take up some of these subjects. I can give them really interesting stuff. Tell them where to find the material. I simply do not have mind space to write. I get it to you. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I need. That's my main 99% of my problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm an engineer by yeah. profession. So you did a good task of this telling us that there has been exclusions in history. Some events has been excluded from this academics. And simultaneously you told that in the 1947, what we adopted was a, not an Indian perspective, that was some socialist perspective. My first question is why socialism, is, why socialism cannot be an Indian perspective first? Can be. But you mentioned that that was no, no. But it, my my objection, is, my objection is to it being an exclusive view. After all, there are not not all Indians are socialist, not all Indians li uh, believe in Nehru. So all my problem essentially is the systematic use of state control and state patronage okay. to essentially perpetuate a certain line of history that suited a certain political class. I am not saying that history books should now be uh, changed and everything should now have the sung perspective of history or whatever it is. I am saying that be honest about the facts and those facts incidentally keep evolving because we find out more things about it and to tell people that given these facts, this is very likely, these are the two or three things that possibly happened. One, it will make history a lot more interesting, two, it will be a lot more honest and I certainly do not think it should be allowed that you have a 
<coughs> a tiny cabal of people uh, you know uh, propped up by state patronage who can then tell us what to think about our past so are you saying that state patronage will stop in the future at the very least you need to have variety don't give patronage to like three people who happen to be and many of those you cases you are creating some more space to some other yeah, let other there be other different views okay. uh, let, more be, let, let said, a thousand uh, flowers bloom one more thing you said that yes. we we are not able to get knowledge about the mewad the correct history of mewad but still i feel proud of mewad kingdom no no i can assure you it's not because of your textbooks it may be more likely because of amar chitra katha no no i <laughs> i haven't read anything about <laughs> उथे anywhere who will go that this kutub minar was built by prithviraj chauhan there are kutub minar was, not, that was built but it was built on top of temples built yeah. by kutub minar that's there actually there are many fact. people claiming that this was built by prithviraj chauhan but when we try to this finding this truth of history definitely i will become less proud of mewar kingdom why because there are okay what with which kind of big war mahana pratap has won why mahatana pratap was not famous for being a construction uh, guy no no he is famous for his valor and brave yeah so it doesn't matter if he didn't build some temples uh, some tall towers nobody it was built by qutubuddin aibak i don't think even the marxists think he was a good chap and okay you told us a different thing that 90% of the history we are reading is incorrect A very large proportion, 90 or not, okay, as a matter of opinion. You can say that we are not reading a major part of history, but you should not say that we are reading incorrect history. Because it determines the no, no. So the two points are made. One of them is that there are interpretations. We are not telling people of different interpretations. That is one part. I agree that people can have interpretations, but my first and most biggest objection is that the facts are wrong. I just gave you one example where I told you about Ashoka. I also mentioned about Aryan invasion much more in much shorter time. I can give you lots of evidence on it, but there are lots. I mean, you can go on and on and on. There are large parts of our history are actually blatant lies. I mean, for example, just to give you one example, so somebody did bring up my ancestors, so I shall bring them up myself now. Now, as it happened to be, there are many streams of people who fought for Indian independence. Now, it happens to be that the revolutionaries were a very important part of that. history or now bhagat singh has suddenly been dug up from this thing but in fact he was hardly the only person there was a huge thing there was something called the gadar movement which during the first world war almost succeeded in throwing the british out and it came within 48 hours of that revol- revolt happening that somebody squealed and the british suppressed it but it was within 48 hours very short distance um there were uh, several major insurrections through indian history uh, ultimately ending with something of course you have all heard of the ina and netaji thanks to recent uh, thing but then uh, then it ultimately culminated in something called the great naval revolt in bombay in 1946 in which 20000 so, uh, sailors in mainly in bombay but also in karachi calcutta and other places basically went on strike and they were not only that they were in control of a large numbers of ships 
to the extent and these were hard earned, this is 1946, these guys are not random sailors who just joined, they fought the second world war, they are experienced guys, they know how to control these ships, they have ammo, they could have taken over in fact Bombay, in fact they effectively controlled Bombay for a couple of days, they were not given any political leadership and then they laid down their arms, that's a different story why they did that. But the fact I'm telling you that was in my view and in the view of many uh, eminent British politicians of that time, including Attlee, who was the Prime Minister of Britain, the key factor why India got independence the following year. Because essentially, they were no longer in control of the British and Indian armed forces. And so, this is not taught to us anywhere in our texts. Far from that, the soldiers of the INA, when they came back, were never taken back into the Indian army. The sailors of the, the uh, revolt of 1946 were thrown out. They were never taken back into the Navy. Why? Because it did not serve a certain narrative. In purpose, yeah. That's and why. There one more thing. It may be something... No, I really to have to stop now. Yeah. Americans that temples were built by them. Is it a fact or not? <laughs> they claim that. I don't know. Well, they, as I said, you have to provide... I'm willing to that perspective, but they have to provide evidence. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I thought you would show some light. But we are... Um, thank you.